Uh, welcome, and um, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, and uh, I want to just pray, I know Noah just prayed, but I want to pray as well and just ask God's help this morning. So Father, we thank you for this morning, we thank you for your word, we ask now that you would teach us, would you speak to us. God, this is your word, it's living and active. You'd say, you say in Isaiah that it does not return to you void, but accomplishes the work that you sent it out for. And so this morning, would you do uh, what is good? Would you do a work in our hearts? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you saw this, but uh, recently over the last couple of weeks, dictionary publishers have been putting out their uh, annual word of the year uh, announcements. And uh, these are the words that are most frequently looked up or that best characterize the past year that we've just lived through. And this year, both Merriam-Webster and Dictionary.com both announced that pandemic, quite appropriately, pandemic, is their word of the year. Um, Runners-up in the category included quarantine, defund, antebellum, schadenfreude, and courtesy of President-elect Biden, malarkey. Malarkey. So go ahead and use malarkey in a sentence later today. That's your challenge. Um, Taking a slightly different approach, instead of choosing just one word, Oxford Dictionaries came out with a, a list of words of an unprecedented year. And included in their list, are in that report, are COVID, QAnon, BLM, shelter-in-place, lockdown, anti-masker, super spreader, workcation, uh, impeachment, and cancel culture. Now, these many words, uh, many of which we'd never even heard before 2020 hit, These many words give us a snapshot of what this past year has been like. It's been an unprecedented year of conflict and chaos on a global scale. And yet there's one word in particular that's missing from all of these lists. One word that actually is showing up right now all around us in our culture, on our greeting cards, in our holiday greetings to one another, in our promotional materials, um, in our holiday wishes on storefronts. And it's really the antonym of all that 2020 has been, been about. It's, it's kind of the opposite of what this past year has been. And it's the word peace. Peace. This year, in the midst of all the conflict and chaos, we heard many in our society crying out for peace. Even as others responded in, in, in kind of anguish over that and said, no justice, no peace. You see, peace is what we long for, and yet peace is so often lacking in our lives, and in our world. Well, this morning, we're pressing pause in our study in the book of Romans to begin a new series for Advent, which we've titled Peace on Earth. The word Advent means coming or arrival. And this is the season in the life of the church where Christians around the world look back at Christ's first coming in the manger in Bethlehem while simultaneously looking forward to Christ's second coming in the clouds of glory. And Advent at its core is about God's people longing for all that is wrong in this world to finally be made right. In an Advent sermon that was preached way back in 1928, the great German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, The celebration of Advent is only possible To those who are troubled in soul and who look forward to something greater. Well, if there was ever an Advent where we felt troubled in soul and looked for something greater to come, this is it. 
And so today we turn to a text in Isaiah 53 that is most commonly preached not at Christmas, but at Easter. It's a classic Good Friday text. But in these troubled times of conflict and chaos, it's also a perfect Advent text for us today. The prophet Isaiah lived in times that were at least as troubled and challenging as our own. The people of Israel lived under constant threat of invasion from foreign powers and, and literally had conquering armies sometimes knocking on their doors. And domestic matters at home were even worse. There was rampant corruption, poverty, oppression, all covered with this thin veneer of false religiosity. There was no justice and there was no peace. It was a time of crisis at home and abroad. And in the midst of that crisis... God raised up the prophet Isaiah to proclaim a message worthy of Advent. A message of hope despite dire present circumstances. The book of Isaiah is comprised of 66 chapters mostly of mostly complex and beautiful Hebrew poetry. It's the most quoted Old Testament book by the New Testament authors. And some scholars have even called it the fifth gospel because it gives such a unique perspective on the person and work of the Messiah. And one of the ways in which it gives that messianic perspective is through these four servant songs that appear in chapters 40 through 55. These songs paint a picture of a promised servant of the Lord who would one day come to bring God's peace and fix what was wrong in the world. And our text today in Isaiah 53 is one of those servant songs. And as we look at it, we're going to see that the peace for which we long is available but that peace is not free. It comes at a cost. So this is the price of peace. Read with me Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The first thing we need to notice in this song is what it says about us. Because what it says about us helps to explain why peace is so elusive. Look at verse 4. At the end of the first line of verse 4, you see the word griefs. And then in the next line, you see the word sorrows. This is all of the hard and sad stuff that happens in life. So illness and injuries, COVID and cancer, slipped discs and chronic pain. Hurtful words and hateful betrayals. Exploitation and disappointment. Being too much or not being enough. Or sometimes being both of those things all at the same time. Broken relationships and broken promises. Loss that's expected and tragedy that's not. So much of life is marked by sorrow and grief. And there are all kinds of people with all kinds of advanced academic degrees who have devoted their lives to trying to understand why that is the case in our world. 
You know, sociology and psychology and philosophy, they all kind of aim to understand our human condition, to understand why we are and why we, why we are the way we are and why we do the things we do in life. So they seek to answer questions like, hey, what's wrong with us? Why are we so prone to conflict? Why do we get so angry with one another? Why do we hurt each other? Why don't we do the things that we know we should do? Or why do we do the things we know we shouldn't do? Why do we turn to lust or laziness or liquor trying to cope with the hurts in our lives? Why are we never satisfied in life? You know, people get paid lots of money to try to figure out answers to those questions. And the general consensus in our secular world these days is that the reason for all the problems that we experience in life is the world out there. It's our environment and our experiences. You know, our secular world, it answers the age-old question of nature versus nurture by putting all its chips on nurture. The problem is out there. People are born good, but then they go into the world and the world just messes us up. Society is the problem. The problem is out there. Now, I won't debate for a moment that there are all kinds of problems in society that can and do really mess people up. There are all kinds of griefs and sorrows out there. And the Bible recognizes those problems. But the Bible is also far more honest and penetrating in its analysis of the problems in the world. The Bible recognizes uh, what's wrong out there, but it doesn't stop out there. It also goes right in here, right into our human hearts. Look at verse 5 and notice the words there. At the end of the first line of verse 5, you'll see the word transgressions. A transgression is a crime. It's crossing a line you're not supposed to cross. It's doing something you're not supposed to do. It's rebelling against an authority that you're supposed to follow. And according to the Bible, we are all transgressors against God. We've all openly disregarded him and his law, and we've crossed his lines, and we've stepped out of bounds. In the next line, you'll see the the word iniquities. Iniquity means bent. And all of us are bent. You see, we don't go straight in the direction we're supposed to go, but we turn to all kinds of other things. We're bent out of shape. So a few years ago, I was talking with a relatively secular university chaplain at one of the schools here in Chicago. And we were having this conversation, and she was telling me that back when she was in seminary, we were talking about human nature and kind of the question that Isaiah is addressing here. And um, she was telling me that when she, back when she was in seminary, she was adamant that people are inherently good. And she used to get into all kinds of arguments with her professors, her more conservative professors, about human nature and, and insist to them that, no, people are good. And what the Bible says is regressive and, and is just wrong-headed. Like she was insistent on this, that that humans are inherently good. But then she told me something changed. And what changed was she had children. And when she had kids, she saw that as soon as her kids were able, like as soon as they could walk or talk or express themselves, that all of a sudden they started doing the things that she told them not to do and not doing the things that she told them to do. Like, there was just something in them that as soon as they could, they started doing the opposite of what they were supposed to do. And it wasn't that they were all bad, but she didn't have to teach them to do wrong. She had to teach them as a parent to do right. 
Her kids, from the moment they came out of the womb, were just kind of bent. And every one of us in here who is a parent knows exactly what she's talking about, right? Like, I love my kids, and my kids are most of the time wonderful. Like, I love being a dad. I've got three boys, Trip, Jet, and Archer. They're super fun. And I love being a dad. But y'all, sometimes my kids, they just do stuff. And I'm like, where did you get that from? Like yesterday I was hiking with, I was walking up in a forest preserve with my two older sons, seven and four. And, and Trip, the older one, he takes a stick and he shoves it at, the, at, at Jet's eyeball. Like pokes him at it. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like you have never in your life seen me do that with anybody. You haven't watched anybody take a stick and shove it. At, like I, dad isn't doing that. I didn't teach you to do that. Like that's just in you. Right? And that selfish bent, that kind of broken bent, is in all of us. See, from the moment you were born, your life was about you. And as you've grown up, you've probably gotten better at hiding it. But your life is still all about you. You do you is what you do. That's what your life is primarily about. And in verse 6, Isaiah sums it up this way. He says, all, all, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every last one of us, to our own way. And this is where the Bible places all the blame for all the conflict and the chaos in the world. This is why there was no peace for Israel in Isaiah's day. And this is why there's no peace for all of us in our day. The root cause behind all the problems in the world out there in society is actually right in here. Inside each and every last one of us. It's like this. God created us to live with him at the center of our lives and our world, like the sun at the center of our solar system. And when he is at the center, everything orbits properly. The Hebrew word for it is shalom. It means peace, but not just peace in the sense of absence of conflict, but peace in the sense of wholeness and flourishing. Everything is as it ought to be. And when God is at the center, Everything happens according to Shalom. But what would happen if you went and you took a giant crane and you just came and you plucked the sun up out of the center of our solar system? Well, everything would go out of whack. There would be chaos and conflict. And that's exactly what every one of us has done. We've taken God out of the center and we've replaced him with all kinds of other things namely ourselves. And because of that, because we've rejected God, conflict and chaos have ensued. Shalom has been shattered. And that's the world we live in. And so that's what this text says about us. And yet this text is not a text of despair but rather a text of hope. 
Isaiah spoke these words to Israel as a promise of better things to come. And right toward the end of verse 5, we see a subtle pointer in that direction. Isaiah says these words, brought us peace. That's that shalom. And Isaiah tells us that peace is available because of the servant of the Lord that he's writing this song about. The whole servant song, it runs from chapter 52, verse 13, to chapter 53, verse 12. It consists of 15 verses that make up five stanzas that tell the story of this promised messianic figure. So far, we've just looked at a few words in the middle stanza, but I want to expand that view and point out some things Isaiah tells us about the servant in the rest of the song. So if you've got a Bible, you can follow along with me. I'm going to, I'm going to read them, but you can just kind of track along. So in 53 verse 2, we learn that this servant had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So he was not physically attractive or personally impressive. In verse 3, Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected by men. So people didn't like him. He wasn't popular. Verse 4 says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So people thought that God had cursed this servant. Then verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off out of the land of the living. So this servant suffered unjustly and then was put to death. Verse 9 elaborates. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So he died with wicked people and was buried in a tomb with a rich man. So that is the life of this suffering servant. But then look at the end of verse 9. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This suffering servant was an innocent. Unlike the rest of us, he didn't go astray. He wasn't bent. In fact, verse 11 tells us he was the righteous one. The one who did right even when the many, when the rest of us have done wrong. And yet he suffered just like the rest of us. Which begs the question, why? Why? Why the suffering for him? We'll look back at verses 4 through 6 where we started. And notice the pronouns there. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So despite his innocence, all this suffering fell upon him for us. He stepped into the chaos. He entered into the conflict. He took on all the problems for us, for you, and for me. You know, this summer, one of the constant refrains in the many protests that took place in our city and across our nation was the refrain, no justice, no peace. Along with a number of other park pastors, I think Noah was there and I know Rafe was there, uh, we attended a march in Bronzeville the week that George Floyd was killed. Some of y'all might have been there with us as well. And as we marched, that was one of the things that was chanted over and over again. No justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. Now, 
whatever you think of the protest this summer, and whatever was meant by those chanting that phrase at any particular moment, there's one thing that is certain. When people cry out, no justice, no peace, they are on to something. You see, that statement inherently recognizes that peace is not free. Peace comes at a cost. And in that sense, no justice, no peace is absolutely right. But that justice and that peace is usually even costlier than we think it is. The justice required for peace, it has to come not just for some bad guys out there, but also for the bad guys right here. All the injustice out there needs to be rectified. But so too does the injustice in here. And the injustice out there is always a product of the injustice in here. And human history bears witness to the fact that no matter who is in power, the injustice in here always tends to find its way out there. It works its way out from in here to out there, and it plays out out there. So revolutions happen, and governments are overthrown, and new officials are elected, and new regimes rise up and make new promises. But the injustices remain. Old injustices might get replaced by new injustices, but injustice itself never really goes away. Because the root problem is not out there, it's in here. And so to deal with the injustice in here means that there's a price that needs to be paid in here by every one of us. In the book of Romans, which we've been preaching on and off over the course of the last year, the Apostle Paul channels his inner Isaiah and he tells us about that price for peace and justice. In Romans 6.23, he writes, The wages of sin is death. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying here. You see, the cost of our rebellion and all the conflict and chaos and injustice that we've wrought in this world is death. What we deserve for taking God's place and going our own way and committing transgressions and iniquities and sins that hurt us and hurt others and hurt God's good world. The cost for all the suffering that we've inflicted out there is all the suffering that is described in this passage right here. We deserve to bear our own griefs and sorrows, to be stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, to be wounded and crushed, to be taken away, to be cut off out of the land of the living. We deserve death. That's the price of peace, and that's the price that we ought to pay. But y'all, here is the glorious good news today. What Isaiah is telling us is that that price is going to be paid. God, speaking through his prophet, promised that one day this suffering servant would come and would pay the price on behalf of his people. Justice would be served because the price would be paid. But, it but the price would not be paid by the people. It would be paid by a voluntary substitute who would give his life as a sacrifice to make peace possible, to restore shalom, to heal all that is hurting in our sin-sick world. Now Isaiah did not know the name of that suffering servant. And in this whole sermon, I have yet to name that name. 
But I know this morning that many of you already know it. You can't read this servant song and not see his name all over it. Isaiah recorded this text some 700 years before he ever stepped onto the scene of world history. And yet right here in Isaiah 53, we have a crystal clear outline of all that he was and did. When Isaiah spoke these words to God's people in his day, this was all in the future. And for centuries, they waited in eager anticipation, longing, looking, waiting, hoping for the day when peace would come and the servant would come and pray, pay the price for peace. And y'all, as we look at this text today, we stand on the other side of that day. We know the name and we know the rest of the story. On the first Christmas day, some 2,000 years ago, a baby came in the manger in Bethlehem who would go on to live out the servant song of Isaiah 53. What was his name? It was Jesus. It was Jesus. And through his sacrificial, substitutionary death, he paid the price of peace. And then he rose victoriously from the grave and he is seated on the throne of heaven, ruling and reigning until that day when he returns and he sets all things right once and for all and he ushers in an eternal peace that will never again be shattered. And y'all, that everlasting peace, that is the kind of peace that every last one of us longs for. When we hit the streets in protest, when we go to the voting booth in hope, when we feel the weight of the griefs and sorrows of this life, that is the peace that we are longing for. And what Isaiah tells us here is that that peace is available. The price has been paid. The Venmo payment has come to your account. For you older folks, the check has been signed and delivered to your address. And all you got to do is receive it. All you got to do is receive it. In verse 1 of Isaiah 53, Isaiah asks a simple question. He says, who has believed what he has heard from us? Have you? Have you put your faith in this suffering servant? Have you believed in Jesus and put God back in the center, in the place where he belongs? Have you accepted that Venmo payment? Has your price been paid? One of the things this text tells us is that ultimately that's a yes or no question. There is no either or, there is no maybe. Either Jesus is paying the price for you, or you are paying the price for yourself. It's one or the other. And today I'm sure there are many of you here for whom the answer to that question is a resounding yes. You have put your faith in Jesus. You have trusted in him for forgiveness and salvation and peace with God. And for you, in this text, there is both a challenge and an encouragement today. You see, we live between the two comings of the suffering servant. He came once to pay the price, and he will come once more to set all things right and to usher in that everlasting peace. 
And in this in-between time, the challenge for those of us who have peace with God is to live as peacemakers in this world of conflict and chaos. Peace is always costly. But if Jesus has paid your price, now you have access to all the resources needed to be a peacemaker and to bring peace into the world. It's like you've got this bank account full of peace from God. He, put, he credited everything to your account. He hooked his bank account to your Venmo account, so you got all of his resources. And he gave you all of that. And now you have the resources needed where you can bring his peace into this world. And so the challenge to you is to be a peacemaker. To carry others' griefs and sorrows as Jesus carries your griefs and sorrows. To sacrifice your rights for the sake of others like Jesus sacrificed his rights for your sake. So tell others, go out into the world and tell others where they can find the peace that they're looking for. That's the challenge from this passage for us today. But here's the encouragement. If you are a believer in Jesus, then you have peace with God. And though you may be troubled in soul now, something greater is coming. And your price for that something greater has been paid in full. And you can know today that your future is one of everlasting peace. So no matter the problems of this life, your future is secure. You will live forever in a peace that will never be shattered. And so I just want to encourage you today to press on. Press on. Press on in, in fixing your hope on the one who paid the price of peace. Brothers and sisters, this Advent, press on. That's the encouragement to you. In the words of Chance the Rapper, the day is on its way, it couldn't wait no more. Here it comes, ready or not, here it comes. So press on as you wait for that day in this Advent season. Press on. And as we land this plane today, I know too that there are some of you here who cannot say with confidence that you've got that peace. And if that's you, and if you're hearing this today and you're just wondering, you're, you're hearing about this peace and you want that, you want that for yourself or, or you're not sure about it, but, but, but you kind of want it. I just want to urge you to make today the day. Make this the day. Make this the day where your price is paid. Make this the day where you believe in Jesus. Make this the day where you put your trust in him. Make this the day where you receive the peace that he alone offers you now and forever. Make this the day. And then join us in pressing on and waiting for that everlasting peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks this morning. We praise you that despite all that we deserve despite all the havoc that we have wreaked in your world, that despite all that is wrong in here, you have made a way for us to be made right with you and to have peace now and forever, for shalom to be restored, for what is hurt to be healed, for what is bent to be made straight. We praise you today. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, the suffering servant, we praise you for the promises through Isaiah some 700 years in advance that were fulfilled 
in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth some 2,000 years ago from where we stand. We praise you that he took on all that we deserved in our place for our sin. And today, God, I want to pray for those among us who don't yet have that peace that he offers. If that's you, I just want to pray a prayer that you can pray along with me right now. Lord Jesus, I need you. I see my sin. I see all the ways that I have fallen short of your standards. I know the price that I ought to pay. And I receive Jesus, receive you as the payment for that price. Put my faith in you. Come into my life. Transform me.